This is Jason Dennington from the Nonprofit Hour Show by the Media Institute for Social Change. On our show on Monday, November 16th, we featured the HHH Foundation and Notes of Hope with our guests Becky Bronstein and Jenny Conley. The Notes of Hope event was a benefit concert that was held the previous Friday, and it featured music and storytellers to benefit the HHH Foundation in memory of Hugh Housen and Bethany Hartung. It's an organization that raises money for the OHSU Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program. As part of that Nonprofit Hour show, we featured some of the music and storytellers that were part of the live event at the Alberta Rose Theatre. There were so many great performances that night, however, it became difficult to actually narrow down a selection that had to fit into the show. So we decided to include all of the full and unedited performances here on our SoundCloud page. Please be aware that in some circumstances, unedited does mean that there may be language that we were unable to include in our broadcast on air. For myself, one of the most meaningful parts of attending the event was hearing the storytellers share their experiences with the audience. Here is one of those storytellers now, Alyssa England. she's good (laughs) all right we have another storyteller that is about to come on and tell you her story she is incredible she is so smart so engaging her story is also very inspirational i cannot wait for you guys to hear this ladies and gentlemen nice and loud for Alyssa england the mic on me. All right. April 28th, 2011. A Thursday afternoon that became the dividing line separating this after from all the before. I was standing at my desk, my closed door dampening the ringing phones and snatches of conversation indicating normal law firm life just outside my office. I held the phone to my ear as a doctor said, I'm sorry, it's cancer. The previous Friday, a radiologist harpooned my breast several times in a surprisingly painful series of fine needle aspirations, yep, (laughs) and core biopsies. Just think, just a slightly bigger needle. (laughs) And like Becky, I too learned the hard way that local anesthesia does not always work on me. The understated radiologist helpfully pointed out that the areola he was stabbing is a sensitive area. (laughs) He was also the first to warn me that the tissue he extracted was concerning. So, as I waited for pathology to confirm the malignancy the radiologist hinted at, 
I crafted an in-case-of-cancer emergency plan. I scrolled lists of names of people to tell and questions to ask in the pages of a black moleskin notebook I previously dedicated to capturing quotes, musics, and reminders. My largest case was wrapped up at a closing held earlier that same day in April. I now call my cancerversary. So I was free to shift all of my goal-oriented ambition and leadership skills into confronting cancer. Pausing only briefly after that phone call, I stared out my office window. I did not cry. I felt ready for the news and did not feel the weight of it because I had a plan. I divided, delegated, sorted, and distributed that burden among all who were willing to take even the smallest piece, and I felt buoyed up by that support. I charged through the preparation, decision-making, and early treatment phase with only a brief pause to preserve my fertility. I was a little more involved than Gabe, but... (laughs) But this mass pressing out of my breast was feeding off my estrogen and progesterone, a subset of breast cancer that is deemed more treatable because you can just turn those hormone receptors off by and starve the cancer cells. Fearing the poison of treatment and time dictated to dedicate to this hormone therapy might deprive me of the opportunity of having children, I decided to preserve my fertility. I handed over more than $12,000 for the opportunity to stab needles into my belly to stimulate those cancer-feeding hormones. I was rewarded with 23 exicles. 35, that's not so bad. For the most part, I cruised through chemo with relative ease and success, as confirmed by, by, by my surgeon when he extracted the remains of my shrunken tumor in a simple lumpectomy. On December 12th, another cancerversary, I was given the thrilling news of a clean PET scan. I called family, friends, and wandered my office, and even announced to strangers in a crowded elevator and on the street that I was (laughs) cancer-free. I started taking tamoxifen, the wonder drug that promised to turn off my hormone receptors, and commenced six weeks of targeted radiation to starve and sap out any rogue cancer cells that might still be lurking. In the gray gloom of January, I returned day after day to the radiation clinic, climbed onto a narrow steel table, and opened the front of my gown, exposing newly scarred and tattooed breasts. I folded into a blue mold cast from my upper body that tilted me slightly to the right and draped my left arm, not quite seductively, over my head and was forced to look over my right shoulder at a blank wall. The tattoos were not my choice. They were utilitarian, applied at the clinic. A few blue freckles for exact alignment with the intimidating linear accelerator. (laughs) The tech frequently made small talk as he manipulated my breast, shifted my head, or tugged at the sheet beneath me to ensure precise adherence to coordinates on a computer screen. Before the leaving the room, he reminded me to hold still and tossed a white cloth over my chest as an afterthought to modesty, something I no longer cared about. My body was not my own. It was a traitor to cancer. 
Kilos stole my hair, scrubbed my face of eyebrows, brows, eyebrows and lashes, ripped whole nails from my toes and fingers, wreaked havoc on my digestive system and caused white thrush to burst in my mouth, stealing flavor from food. My skin grew pale and sensitive, frequently bursting into hives or startling bruises. Prednisone and the turmoil of chemopause rounded my belly and mysteriously added weight despite my limited calorie intake. I was reduced to vital signs and blood work as I was poked with needles, examined and scanned. By the time I subjected myself to this radiation in my little mold looking over my shoulder, I'd already surrendered my body to its medical status. Abandoned to the noxious gamma rays, the vault-like lead door swung shut. It had to be at least three feet thick and bore a yellow trefoil. You know, that iconic radiation warning symbol that was like, get the hell out of here? Because those dangerous emissions, they were just for me. What's funny is I remember not just the futuristic machine emitting a series of beeps and clicks as it whirred to life, but also the mundane announcements of weather and traffic from a radio tuned to New York's 1010 winds. It was like I was in the back of a cab. But the most, most prominent image from that time enclosed in the tomb is of the beige privacy curtain that was just inside that vault door. For some reason, it was embroidered with moralizing phrases saying things like, be gentle with yourself. Speak your truth. Peace. Do not distress yourself with the darkness. <laughs> I cringed at the inept attempt to comfort from a curtain. <laughs> but confined to my mold is the only texture in my direct line of sight staring at this blank wall. Bitterly, I read and reread that mocking curtain every day, never closing my eyes, because once the door released, the airtight seal broke and a rush of air from the hallway came into the room and stirred that sermonizing curtain to dance for my freedom. Days turned to weeks, turning my skin pink, then an angry red that eventually cracked. I was unable to wear any type of bra. Fatigue pressed in from all sides, and time slipped through my fingers like water. It took all of my effort to go through the most basic motions of life. Apathy took over, resulting in a towering pile of neglect at home and work, which threatened to topple and bury me. I was terrified of being found out, but unable to do anything or really care about it. I completely lost the ability to sleep because my brain fretted over all the things I left undone. I was completely embodying the city that never sleeps in the lamest possible way. Nocturnal? Check. Patchy buzzed hair? Check. Pill popping, sleep deprived, braless, fresh tattoos, check, 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 and check. <laughs> All of which might have been pretty punk rock under different circumstances. And yet, as my whole life order deteriorated into anarchy, 
I was anything but punk rock. Depleted and full of despair, I collapsed. I suppose with cancer, the collapse seems inevitable, even accept expected. But I didn't see it coming. A psychiatrist confirmed I was suffering from severe clinical depression with a hefty side portion of generalized anxiety disorder. But unlike the lockstep course of treatment for breast cancer, addressing depression and making progress is arbitrary and subjective and oh so lonely. I completed radiation on leap day and tried to celebrate the end of cancer treatment, but I was taking progressively stronger and stronger doses of the one antidepressant that was compatible with tamoxifen without lasting improvement. Besides that, my body thrummed as if a tight string running along my center had been plucked and wavered incessantly. My energy had always matched pace with New York, New York City's dynamism, but now the city terrified me and triggered panic attacks if I had to board a crowded subway or was simply jostled on the street. In October, a full year after finishing chemo, I called my mom for help. She flew 2,000 miles to be by my side and sort out months of carelessness. Together, we met with my oncologist where I confessed I would rather have cancer than continue living this way. My oncologist didn't need convincing. She had witnessed the changes in me and understood my desperation. She agreed to drop tamoxifen if I would try another estrogen blocker. My hormone levels were still wonky from chemo, and I was like a teenager in a Judy Bloom book waiting for my period as a sign of normalcy. <laughs> But I could stop waiting because I was put in full-on menopause with another needle I get in my belly once a month. It's like a pincushion. <laughs> the upside being I could stop carrying around tampons because my ovaries were put into hibernation, as was my career. I had been ping-ponging in and out of work with understanding and support from my firm and my coworkers. But once I shifted from the clear path of battling cancer to the nebulous and kind of shameful demon of depression, I didn't know what was reasonable. My psychiatrist cautioned me to allow at least six months to a year before making another attempt at returning to work. Secretly, I kind of felt like I could improve faster than that. However, a perfect storm of chemotherapy, depression, and instant menopause touched down in my brain's neatly organized filing room, swirling everything into chaotic piles and scattered drifts. I was left ashamed and exhausted from the effort of hiding this confusion at work and with friends. I struggled to concentrate, failed to remember names, and forgot simple words and phrases. I left my keys in the outside lock of my New York apartment. A lot. At least I had a doorman. <laughs> I 
I was chronically late because I failed to account for how much longer it took me to do anything and everything. I was referred to a neuropsychologist for testing. Over the course of two days, she analyzed my brain with a variety of cognition drills that included counting backwards from 100 by sevens. I don't know if I could do that before, really, but (laughs) replicating drawings of shapes, repeating number patterns, memorizing lists of objects, repeating details of a new style story, and solving math problems. Again, not really my pre-cancer forte, but... Her assessment confirmed that my prefrontal cortex of my brain, the executive function portion, was weakened, causing me to perform far below average for my age, education, and profession. This evaluation was gratifying to my rational mind that saw external validation of this extreme shift in my brain and my thinking but it was terrifying to my emotional self that mourned the severity of the results and devastating to my ego that relied heavily on my career for validation. Well, chemo brain is a common side effect of cancer treatment. It is not well understood because it manifests in ways that can also be attributed attributed to aging, menopause, depression, and stress. Hmm, had a few of those. (laughs) The external signs can appear trivial, despite being deeply unsettling. Chemo brain is not really a diagnosis, but an acknowledgement of cognitive dysfunction or impairment that is commonly described as brain fog. (laughs) It has only been accepted as a concrete physical injury or impairment or thing caused by chemo after MRI studies revealed significant decreases in brain matter after as little as one month of chemotherapy. Let's say June, July, August, September, October, oh, five months, okay. Um, (laughs) And yet, I was never told about the possibility, and websites and pamphlets continue to describe chemo brain as mild and subtle changes that usually go away with time. Accurately, it is pointed out that others around the person may not even notice any changes at all. This is the worst part. (laughs) I think others feel to notice the changes because, one, they're just happy you're alive. You survived cancer. You're supposed to just be good and move on with whatever you're left with. And two, the shift doesn't actually alter or reduce the person's intelligence. Instead, it changes access to information, muddles concentration, and impedes one's ability to formulate strategies and execute plans. The advice to to adopt day-to-day coping skills like using a daily planner, getting enough sleep, and following a routine is simplistic. Yes, I want to make it out of the house, on time with my keys, my phone, and wallet, all in one go. But this is just grazing the surface of the problem. How could I possibly develop case strategies, focus on research for hours at a time, respond with alacrity to questions from clients, or worse, make arguments before a judge when I freeze each time a word or thought slips out of my reach? The existing literature downplays the loss of functions with advice like, 
Try not to focus on how much chemo brain is bothering you. Accepting the problem will help you deal with it. I did not, I do not want to accept the problem. My brain feels foreign and uncomfortable. I do not want to adapt to this absent-minded mush brain. I want to fix it. I want to bully my dysfunctional neurotransmitters into compliance with my expectations. I want a path or prescribed treatment for reclaiming my life, my pre-cancer life. Instead, the neuropsychologist focused on addressing what she called my maladaptive behavior of being rewarded for the critical motivating voice I relied upon to reach my goals. (laughs) Excuse me? My so-called critical motivating voice is called ambition. (laughs) The suggestion to cultivate a gentle voice with positive self-talk sounded too much like that damn curtain back in radiation. I was used to the pulse, the pressure, and the preaching of the overachiever that urged me to work harder and helped me succeed. Sure, she could use a break, but beneath my depression and menopause, I believed this voice of ambition was still alive and would carry me through rehabilitation back to my career. But I started to concede some changes. I moved to Portland. <laughs> to slow down, prioritize time among trees, not buildings, and be closer to family in Utah. You know, not too close, just closer. <laughs> I was still on medical leave when I made the move, but I chose Portland because my law firm has an office here, a teeny tiny one they call the Pacific Northwest office, kind of lumping it in with Seattle. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But they agreed to transfer me here under the mutual assumption that I would be ready for work in the fall, which was that full year since my psychiatrist said six months to a year. Yeah, so I was like, had to be ready. But I was far from ready. So they let me go. (laughs) The career I had dedicated so much of my life to was over, stalled, shifting. I still don't know. Without active cancer and no job to work towards, I was untethered and drifting somewhere between illness and health. The roller coaster of medications and fatigue caused weight to pile on me in strange places and forced me into a wardrobe two and then three sizes larger than my precancer closet. I remained detached from this body that startled me in the mirror and photos and refused to acknowledge this new person might be here to stay. I focused my efforts full time on rehabilitation, working with a variety of professionals here at OHSU. My new psychiatrist transferred me to a third and thankfully effective antidepressant and eventually added ADD medication to aid my scattered concentration and boost my energy. I started working with a speech pathologist to counter my chemo brain with cognitive rehabilitation. An occupational therapist offered ways to cope with unrelenting fatigue and gave me permission to lower my expectations and say no. I continue to work with a physical therapist to counter lingering neuropathy and joint pain. I prioritize daily yoga and frequent hikes. I also joined a writing workshop with many of the fine people in this audience (laughs) where I began to acknowledge 
and process my grief with a pen. But it was my cognitive behavior therapist who finally helped me recognize through mindfulness training that the compelling voice in my head I called ambition can kind of be a bully. (laughs) She asked me to voice aloud the internal chatter of insecurities. Alyssa, you are fat and lazy. Why are you milking this whole cancer thing? Other people manage to go back to work after cancer. Get over it. It was horrifying. I would never say these things to another person. Why did I allow this mean girl to dominate my thoughts? Floundering for direction, I attended a month-long yoga teacher training in Costa Rica. There, my progress was tested as I continued to wrestle with that mean girl in my head, tried to implement new, new learning techniques, and struggled to keep up both physically and intellectually. At the end of the month, my instructor told me, stop trying to be perfect and focus on your heart chakra. First the curtain then the neuropsychologist, and now my yoga instructor. Maybe I needed to start listening. They were all sending me the same message. I needed to make some room. To close the training, we hiked through the jungle to a waterfall where we each selected a rock for a closing manifestation ceremony. I wrote acceptance as my goal for the coming year. Tossing it into the cool, fresh water, I took my first step toward letting go of grief, pain, and heartbreak, and allowing space for an altered vision of my post-cancer life. Still hoping to return to the legal, legal world in some capacity, and knowing my disability insurance claim was under review, I pushed myself to network, submit applications, and interview for jobs unsure as to whether I was really ready. My insurance company sent me for an independent medical examination with another neuropsychologist to evaluate my claim. That eight-hour day of testing was more difficult and more stressful for me in my current state than the New York bar exam. The report was given solely to the insurance company, and I have not organized myself enough to request a copy. But I know... My ongoing cognitive impairment was confirmed because in April, my benefits were continued without a fight. So I stopped fighting as well. Shortly after the decision, I was in Moab volunteering at a first ascents camp for young adult cancer survivors. Had a silent riverside ceremony similar to the one in Costa Rica. I selected a pink sandstone rock and wrote acceptance. Sitting quietly in the red sand, the sun low but still warm on my skin, my gaze soft on the river, it struck me. My manifestation is working. Instead of looking backwards to who I once was and mourning all I lost to cancer, I am focusing on the now with gratitude for all I have gained. 
Cancer survivorship is not about winning battles or transforming into an enlightened, triumphant warrior because most of us are left with far too much loss and confusion to live up to that type of expectation. Survivorship is a journey without the benefit of GPS. It's starting over with no compass or map, carrying a heavy pack of post-cancer complications, fears, and impairments that threaten to send you crashing into another ravine of recurrence, depression, anxiety, any of it. But there is joy in the journey, which makes survivorship a privilege. It is a privilege to witness the love and support of family, friends, coworkers, acquaintances, and strangers. It is a privilege to connect with other survivors through First Ascents and my writing group. It is a privilege to step back, inventory what is most important to me, and get comfortable living small while I grieve, heal, adapt, and gather courage. It is a privilege to stand here and share my story. Thank you. Keep it going for Alyssa England. That was incredible. Once again, that was one of the performances from the Notes of Hope Benefit Concert for the HHH Foundation at the Alberta Rose Theater on November 13th. If you'd like to find out more about the annual Notes of Hope concert or the HHH Foundation, and to find out how you can donate and help the cause, you can visit notesofhopepdx.org.